Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Hi FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiebman. Great to be with you here this wonderful afternoon. And my friends, as we know, the Jewish calendar is filled with days of note. Some are biblical holidays, others are rabbinical holidays, and many are not even holidays per se, but days of significance. And if we should tally all these dates, we would find approximately about 65 significant days in the course of a year. That averages out to about, what, five and a half days per month. We're always either gearing up for a Jewish day of note or enjoying one or basking in its afterglow. You think about all these important days, you know, every month begins with Rosh Chodesh, a day or two. And then we have other festive days besides for the big holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Pesach, Shavuos. But you have even minor holidays such as Tu Bishvat and Tu Ba'av and, and Erev Pesach and many other significant days. Many people celebrate various Hasidic festivals or yard sites of great sages of Jewish history. And some of these dates, of course, are better known than others, right? A lot of people, a lot more people know about Pesach than what's coming up in a couple of days, Pesach Sheni. In fact, this coming Sunday, Saturday night, Sunday is. So indeed, we're fast approaching the 30 day point, a full month from Pesach, could you imagine our Seder was one month ago? And now 30 days later on Sunday, we are celebrating Pesach Sheni, the second Pesach. What's this festival all about? Why is it necessary to have a second Pesach? Is one Pesach not enough? I mean, do we get a second Purim or a second Hanukkah or going to biblical holidays, second Rosh Hashanah or Sukkot or Shavuos? No, but Pesach, we get a second Pesach. So to understand this, let's just go back a little bit in history. Let's go all the way back to the first Pesach, 3,334 years ago. On the night before the exodus from Egypt, just before the the Jewish people, our ancestors, left their slavery and bondage in Egypt behind, God instructed the Jewish people to enjoy a special kind of meal, a festive meal. They were to slaughter a sheep, to roast it on a pit, and to eat this delicious braai for dinner that night. This was the very first ever carbon Pesach, or in English as it's known, the Paschal lamb. And they were famously told to collect the blood from the sheep and paint it on the doorposts and the lintels of their homes. They were told to eat the lamb at home, not to leave their homes until the morning, the very first quarantine that the Jews had to experience well before COVID-19. And indeed, When they emerged from their homes in the morning, they found the entire country in a panic. All the Egyptians urging, begging, pleading with the Jews to just leave enough. They had 10 mighty plagues that just decimated their country. And this final one was just the final blow. Every firstborn in Egypt died except for Pharaoh and, of course, the Jewish firstborns. And so the Egyptian neighbors offered them anything they might want Just go, leave us alone, leave this country. We've had enough. We don't need you as slaves anymore. We know the Jews spent the morning collecting valuables from their Egyptian neighbors. Most Egyptians were happy to give the Jews anything they asked for, just go. And so the Jews left the next day at midday, the stroke of 12 o'clock, 
the Jews left in mass and all laden with an abundance of material goods with which they were leaving Egypt. When God instructed Moshe about this Karban Pesach, the Paschal Lamb Dinner, Hashem mentioned that this would be an annual ritual every year on the anniversary of the Exodus, on the night of Pesach, the Jews were to reenact this and to tap into the symptoms of the moment because every year on this day, there's a special energy in the world of freedom of emancipation from slavery, from personal slavery. And only after the Jews would enter Israel though, would they begin this annual ritual. So nobody expected to actually bring the carbon Pesach while they were in the desert. We know that over the course of that following year, although the Jews were supposed to go directly from Egypt to Israel, you would have thought straight from bondage to the promised land. Of course, along the way, they were to receive the Torah at Mount Sinai, which is why we're counting down the days of the Omer. Well, unfortunately, they hit a snag. And after miscalculating Moshe's return from Mount Sinai, many of the people worshiped the golden calf. And so it took on Moshe Rabbeinu three months to secure forgiveness for the Jewish people. Then, of course, they were to build, as part of their rectification, a tabernacle, the Mishka, a sanctuary for God in the desert, which they did. And then they erected it on the first of Nisan, that's two weeks before the first anniversary of the Exodus. And at this point, God surprised them with an unexpected directive. I want to read it to you actually from the Torah itself. This is in Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, which we're going to start reading in two weeks' time. The first verses of chapter 10. And the Torah describes, Vayidaber Hashem Moshe, God spoke to Moshe Bamidbar Sinai there in the Sinai Desert. It was in the first month of the second year from their exodus from the land of Egypt, saying. So this is just two weeks before the anniversary of the exodus. God tells Moshe as follows. Let the children of Israel bring the Karban Pesach at the appointed time. They should bring it in the afternoon of the 14th of this month, which today is what we know, Erev Pesach. And this appointed time, in accordance with all its statutes and ordinances, so they are to follow the instructions they were given. And Moshe instructed the children of Israel to bring this Karban Pesach. Now just dissecting and analyzing this a little bit as we read through the words, Jews were not expecting to bring a carbon Pesach that year. God had surprised them and told them to bring one. Yes, when they entered the land of Israel, they were expecting to bring it. But it's fascinating. This was the only time that they brought the carbon Pesach in the desert. They were never again instructed to bring it until they entered Israel 39 years later. So why did God make this rather unexpected exception? You see, when God provided the instructions for the carbon Pesach, Hashem instructed that everyone wants to participate. However, the apostates, the people who worshiped false gods, they were not allowed to bring the carbon Pesach. And so the very first Pesach in the desert that we are reading about in this instruction that God told the Jewish people occurred after the Jews had worshiped the golden calf. And though God had already informed Moshe that they were forgiven for this 
grievous, heinous sin of infidelity of betraying God, right? They built the tabernacle, the Mishka, and their sacrifices were accepted by God. But nevertheless, the Jews did not know whether their status as idolaters was fully lifted. And the proof of this would only come if they would be permitted to bring the carbon Pesach that is forbidden by apostates. So rather than make them wait and be anxious for all these years until they're going to get to Israel, I guess at this point they didn't know yet it's going to be that long, 40 years. So God made this exception. At this point they just thought they were a little bit delayed. And God asked them to bring the carbon Pesach that particular year, the year after the Exodus, the very first anniversary. And now they knew beyond any shadow of doubt that they had been fully forgiven by God. The thing is, some Jews at that stage were in a state of impurity on that first anniversary of the Pesach. Why? For a variety of reasons. Maybe they came in contact with the dead. And of course, we know that by Jewish law, that a person who comes in contact with a corpse, such a person is in a state of tumah, ritual impurity. Now, even this is a whole discussion by our sages. Who were the Jews? Who were these particular people? How did they come in contact with dead? We don't, we don't assume that they were engaged with burying family or community members because virtually no Jews actually died during that period in the desert. And we know this because two censuses were taken of the Jews that year. One had been taken about six months earlier, and the other was taken just, uh, you know, two weeks later. And the two censuses actually match up perfectly. So within six and a half months, nobody died. This tells us that there's, considering the numbers are the same, that nobody died during this time. That's what Rashi tells us there. So how then did these Jews come in contact with the dead? The Gemara and Masechet Sukkah discusses this, and our sages offer various opinions. Rabbi Yossi says, it was those who carried the casket of Yosef HaTzadik. Rabbi Akiva, he says, it was Mishael and Elitzafan, whom Moshe had instructed to remove the remains of Nadav and Avihu, which we read just a few weeks ago, how these two sons of Aaron had perished due to their bringing an unsummoned sacrifice, fire, sorry, to God. And then there's the opinion of Rabbi Yitzchak. He says that either group would have had plenty of time to become purified, to, be, to become tahar between the last time that they touched Yosef's casket or even Nadav and Avihu's remains and the time of the carbon Pesach. So therefore, according to Rabbi Yitzchak, he concludes that this was a mace mitzvah Mes mitzvah is if a person dies and it is a mitzvah to bury them. And this person obviously must have died on Erev Pesach. Either way, regardless which opinion we follow, these people, these individuals were ritually impure and they couldn't participate in the anniversary of the Pesach. Remember, this is the very first anniversary. You feel really left out that they couldn't be part of it because people in a state of impurity are not permitted to offer a sacrifice until seven days pass, during which time they could, of course, perform that special purification process to become ritually purified. Now, seven days had not yet passed 
for these individuals, according to Rabbi Yitzchak's opinion, that this was on Erev Pesach. Or even according to the opinion of that it was the remains of Yosef, then if they were still carrying his casket. Again, they were in, they were in contact with, with the dead. So they were still in a state of ritual impurity. And knowing that they were not permitted to bring the carbon Pesach, they felt bad. And they approached Moshe Rabbeinu and they asked him this question, why should they be excluded? Why should they be left out while the entire nation brings the carbon Pesach? And they can't. And so, of course, this raises a, a, an important question. They knew exactly why they were excluded, right? It was because they were ritually impure. So why do they ask Lamanigara why they're being excluded? You know, what made them think that they should be included? If they had a rationale for being included, they should have told Maishu Rabbeinu, we feel we should be included for such and such reason. But clearly there's a reason why they're being excluded. But when we take a closer look at their words, we actually see that they did have a rationale and they shared it with Maisha. They said to Maisha Rabbeinu, and I quote, Lama Nigara, why should we be excluded from bringing from, um, uh, the offering to God in its appointed time, along with all the children of Israel? Those were their words. That's what they said to Maisha, that they would preferred to be able to bring the sacrifice at the same time as the rest of the people. They said, They wanted to be part of the rest of the community when everyone else is bringing the carbon Pesach. That was their claim to Moshe. Now, that's a very interesting argument. Had we been people who regard ourselves as just mere individuals, we would expect to be judged on our own individual merits alone. Which in this case means we're impure people and therefore we should be judged accordingly. And we would understand why we're being excluded. But we don't just see ourselves as regular individuals. In fact, you know, an argument can be made that since they took care of a mess mitzvah, which is an obligation on the entire community. So their very impurity, their tumah, was an extension really of the entire communities. They were tamay because they buried a fellow Jew who everyone was obligated to bury. So they fulfilled the obligation on behalf of the entire community. If they represented the community, they must be considered as part of the community. They felt themselves as very much connected to the entire community. And if that's the case, they say, who cares then that we as individuals are impure? Their claim is a very powerful lesson for all of us. The fact that God accepted the rationale, in fact, and God granted their request tells us that when we include ourselves in the larger community, then God treats us accordingly. God doesn't look at our individual faults, at our shortcomings. Rather, Hashem accords us the same privileges and the allowances that God accords to the entire community, whether we deserve it or not. But it's only when we isolate ourselves from the community 
that God provides us with our own merits and then we're judged accordingly as individuals. But when we see ourselves as part of the greater community, then indeed we're judged with the community. And this, of course, has tremendous relevance to all of us because we realize we're not just individuals. We can't allow ourselves to forget about our friends and our neighbors. We're all part of a collective. If we treat ourselves as individuals, then God views us as individuals and treats us according to our merit alone. But if we treat ourselves as members of the community, then God will certainly view us as such and grant us the privileges that God grants the entire community. Don't see yourself as separate. Don't see yourself Don't see yourself as separate from the community. We have to be part of the community together with everyone. We'll be right back. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kievman, and we have been talking about our Jewish calendar, which has so many days of note. And there are so many that ordinarily many don't have time for and don't necessarily reflect upon, such as the holiday coming up on Saturday night, Sunday, called Pesach Sheni, the second Passover. It's a lesser known holiday, and we discussed a little bit of the background, which was that on the night before the original Pesach, when the Jews were instructed to slaughter, to offer the Karban Pesach, to roast and eat that lamb in their homes, and not to leave their homes until the morning. The very next morning, Egypt was in panic, and all firstborn Egyptians had died, and they urged and pleaded and begged the Jews to leave. They didn't want any more plagues coming upon them. And by midday, the Jews had packed up, left, laden with all of Egypt's riches. And as we discussed, the Jews were told that when they arrive in Israel, which at that point they thought would be imminent, they were to offer the carbon Pesach, it would become an annual tradition. But we know what happened in the ensuing months, how, of course, good events, splitting of the sea, receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai, but unfortunately other incidents to their detriment, such as worshiping the golden calf and the derail of their arrival to the land of Israel. But actually long before that, as we mentioned, there was the building of the tabernacle and the anniversary of the first Pesach, when God told the Jewish people while they were still in the desert, God surprised them with an instruction to bring the carbon Pesach. And we're holding now where some of the people who were impure and forbidden by Jewish law to bring the Karban Pesach offering. And they asked if they can have the opportunity. They said, Lama Nigara, why should we be left out? Why can we not participate? And they were granted a makeup date. And so, as we discussed, very important lesson we could learn just from their request alone. It's a very important and significant lesson. The fact that God accepted their plea, their request to be part of the community because they said we were carrying the bones, the remains of whether it was Joseph or it was a mess mitzvah, whichever one or Nadav Anaviu. The fact is we were doing something that everyone's responsible for. They saw themselves as part of the community, not separate from it. And I think this tells us 
a very powerful lesson for life. And that is that when we see ourselves as part of a collective, if we treat ourselves as such, then God doesn't highlight our shortcomings and flaws, but rather we are part of the community. Unlike when we see ourselves as individuals and then we are in that microscopic lens, are we indeed worthy? But now let's go forward from there. Moshe Rabbeinu replied to their question of Lama Nigara when they asked Moshe, why can they not be part of this? What was Moshe Rabbeinu's response? Moshe Rabbeinu, actually, he said to the people, let me check. His exact words, Moshe, Moshe said to them, Imdu, stand by. And I will find out, I will hear what God instructs me to tell you. There's a story about the Baal Shem Tov. It was a custom always to praying for a very long time. A very important part of the Hasidic tradition is Avodah Satfila, the time spent in, in prayer. And the Baal Shem Tov indeed would, would spend time in solitude praying and his congregants would usually wait for him to finish before they would go home. After all, it was the right thing, respectful to wait for their Rebbe. But one day, some of the congregants were very hungry. So his students went home, they ate lunch, and they came back to the shul when, you know, obviously before the time that he would usually have finished his prayers. But to their astonishment, the Baal Shem Tov had finished before they returned and he was already waiting for them. And they asked him, why did he finish earlier than usual? Usually he waits for them, he participates, he, they wait for him and, and, and he goes on praying for a while. Why all of a sudden today did he finish his prayers so quickly without them? And the Vashantav explained with a parable. He said, you know, the townspeople, they wanted to capture a beautiful bird that was nesting on top of a tree. No one could reach that high height of the tree. What did they do? They had no cherry pickers in those days. So they built a human pyramid with which they would be able to reach the bird on top of the tree. And now the Baal Shem Tov says to his students, suppose the person at the bottom of this human pyramid would step away. What do you think would happen? Not only would the one at the top of the pyramid fail to reach the bird, but obviously the entire pyramid would collapse. Said the Baal Shem Tov his Talmidim to his students, the same applies to me right here. When I pray and reach for the heavenly heights, you know why I succeed. It's only because I'm standing on top of your shoulders. When you stepped away, what happened was the pyramid fell. I was unable to reach my objective. I couldn't attain that level that I usually do because you're usually around. But now that you were all gone, my figurative pyramid collapsed. And so I wound up concluding my prayers much quicker. One of his students, Rabbi Aaron of Kalini, observed that this is precisely what Moshe Rabbeinu meant when he said, stand by, imdu, the eshma, and I will hear what God instructs me to tell you. 
I will only hear God's reply if you stand by. If you walk away, I won't merit that divine response. I need you to be here. I need your support. We all need to be here for each other. We need to be together. And of course, we know what happens next. Hashem's response, Vayedaber Hashem Lemar. God spoke to Moshe saying, God swiftly responded. And what does God say to Moshe? These words, Dabra B'nai Yisrael, speak to the children of Israel, Lemar, to tell them, Ish, Ish, Kiyeh, If any one of you are to be ritually impure, anyone becomes unclean from having contact with the dead, or if you will be on a distant journey, very words of not just now, but in future generations as well. Also Pesach Hashem, then you know something? Even if this person were to miss the opportunity to bring the Karbam Pesach, God says, you know what? Give them a second chance. This was God's consent to a makeup date that would be exactly one month after. As the verse says, in the second month, the month of Iyar, in the exact same day as the Exodus, the 14th of the month, in the afternoon, then they are able to do exactly as they would have in the previous month, and they could enjoy the carbon Pesach and eat it, as the verse says, Al matzahs umrorim yachluhu with matzah and maror, the same exact experience as it would be done. And it continues, Exact same order and instructions as the statutes, the laws related to the carbon Pesach that is offered on the original date. And this, of course, brings up another question. Although they felt themselves to be integral members of the community, why did God make such an unprecedented exclusion for them? There are lots of Jews who feel connected to the community who are nevertheless not granted their reprieve, their opportunity when they miss out on their own individual obligations. In fact, the general rule is, if you miss the opportunity, you miss the boat, that's it. And this in fact, is the only makeup date in the entire Torah. This is the only one. If you miss celebrating Shabbos, you can't do Shabbos on Sunday. Sorry. You missed Yom Kippur, there's no makeup date. There's no second Hanukkah, as we said before. You can't even get a makeup date for any of these or any other dates. But you can get a makeup date for Pesach. The question, of course, is why? Why did they deserve this? Now, I guess it's true. There are, there are makeup dates for certain of the uh, dates of in the, the Shalish Regalim, but those are not new days designated uniquely and specifically as makeup dates. On Pesach and Sukkot, they are part of the Yom Tev. So one who did not bring their carbon on the first day, you could bring it on the subsequent days of Yom Tov. Those are Yemei Tashlumin, the days that fill in for the previous day. 
And although Shavuos actually has Yemei Tashlumim that are not part of the Yom Tov because Shavuos is a one-day festival in Israel even today, right? It, it, it's, it's not a makeup for missing it on the correct day. It's because there were too many Jews for everyone to bring it on the first day. So this means that those who brought it after Yom Tov brought it on the correct date. It's not a makeup date. Those were dates that were specifically designated to accommodate all the throngs of people that would come to Jerusalem. But no other holiday has a makeup date as Pesach does, as these Jews who said to Maisha Rabbeinu, Lamanagara, why should we be left out? Why should we be deprived of this opportunity to be part of the Karban Pesach because we were ritually impure? They said to Maisha, why should we be excluded? And I think within that again, the the answer, well, it's quite surprising even by its simplicity. It's because they asked. Not just asked, but in fact they demanded. As if their very lives depended on it. La manigara, why should we be excluded, they asked. It's not a polite question. It's actually an insistent demand. When we Jews demand something from God, from our very depths inside ourselves, sincerely, when we yearn for it with every fiber of our being, God steps in and God provides it. And this is because we are God's children. No matter how important and busy a parent might be, parents make time and space for the children's request. And this, I think, is a very important lesson for us. You know, think of the, think of the analogy of a, a busy CEO of a major Fortune 500 company who's responsible for the livelihood of thousands of his employees. It takes weeks to secure an appointment with him. And when you finally get in to see them, they, they can hardly spare a moment for you. And yet, when he gets a call from his distraught child in the middle of a busy day, then he hopefully sets everything aside and responds. Now, I know that's not always the case. In fact, there was a doctor in the community who once told me a story that, and it, with a very important lesson, this doctor had been very, very busy. He would leave his home early in the morning and come late at night. And, and even on, on weekends, he was always busy with conferences and lectures and you name it. And one day, the doctor is looking through his list of patients and he sees a familiar name. Well, he doesn't pay much attention to it. But what was most interesting was that actually who walked into his office was his wife. And he looked at her a little bit in bewilderment. What are you doing here? You know, where this is not home. And she says, you never have time for me. I've come to speak to you. And he says, come on, hurry it up. And she says, no, this is an appointment that I'm actually paying for. And I need the full half hour, the full schedule of this appointment with your undivided attention. And of course, the doctor was telling me what it took for his wife to get his time and attention. He came to that realization. In fact, I heard a story of a Rebbitzin who did a similar thing to her husband, who was the rabbi. Sometimes we just forget to have time for our children. IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life. 
And so this Rebetzin tells her husband that they're having a very distinguished and important visitor coming for Shabbos. They should really get the place looking nice and neat. You know how many months she's been asking him to have certain light bulbs and globes changed around the house and to have different leaks and holes uh, patched up and, you know, a lot that had to get done and painting. And finally, it's all taken care of. And he asks his wife, where's this distinguished guest? And she says, well, I'm the distinguished guest or you're the distinguished guest. But the point, of course, that I'm trying to illustrate is how indeed we need to realize that it, it's so important that we set the priority. We are God's children. And when a child is distraught and begs from the depths of their heart, God sets aside all considerations and God grants our entreaties. And so this, I think, is something that certainly we have to consider as an important lesson. And I think it's even more profound when you consider that the people who were prevented from bringing the Karban Pesach, that sacrifice, were not restricted by man-made laws. These are actually laws that were that were inscribed by God, by the Creator. They were restricted by God-made laws. The Torah forbids bringing a sacrifice in a state of ritual impurity. So how could they have hoped to get around that? And yet, these people cried out to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses. They beseeched God with every fiber of their being, Lama Nigara, why should we be excluded? And guess what? Prayer was answered. They got exactly what they wanted. And it's only Pesach that has a makeup date because this was the only occasion on which someone pleaded for one, begged, asked Hashem. No one ever did that with any other mitzvah. Perhaps if someone had demanded a makeup date for a different Jewish holiday, maybe that too would have been granted. And I think this teaches us, again, a very important, profound lesson for life. That sometimes there are mitzvahs that we have to do, but we find ourselves unable to do them because of particular circumstances, right? There was, there was COVID, it was much more rampant last year and the year before we found ourselves in quarantine, locked, we couldn't get out there, we couldn't do certain things. You know, for example, a father who was forced to work at night because, you know, he can't help his child with... And he's unable to help his children with homework or other things where a mother is overwhelmed and doesn't have enough energy and patience for prayer, whatever it is, what should they do? Pesach Sheni teaches us that there's a, if there's a mitzvah that we cannot do due to particular certain circumstances, we should plead with God from the depths of our hearts. And guess what? God will find a way to make it happen. Help will arrive from the most unexpected quarters, as it did for the Jews in the desert. And this, of course, putting that and taking that into consideration, that yes, we sometimes find that we're unable to do certain things and we're unable to, to do whatever it might be. Well, guess what? I know it's not unreasonable to feel like maybe we're at the end of our rope and what do we do? I know many seniors who during the past two years had to figure out their situation, how they were going to 
deal with the circumstances and it was overwhelming. But when we are in that situation, when we are at the end of our rope, we should not discount the power of prayer. God listens to every word that we say. And so maybe in those situations, we realize that we do our part. We reach out to God and we say, Lama Negara. We cry out with every fiber of our being. Why should we lose out? Why should we not be able to do as we wish to, to participate, to do what we want? And if we demand it, God will provide relief. God will give the answer to our prayers. Sometimes we grow cynical. We think that God doesn't pay attention to our prayers and that any improvements would have happened with or without our prayers. The Pesach Shani story reminds us that God is personal. To Him, we aren't just faceless, nameless beings. We are His dear children, and He pays close attention to our words. If we cry with authenticity, with sincerity, then no doubt God will listen. God's response is not always exactly what we necessarily hoped for. And indeed, the Jews who protested, they may have hoped to bring the, the carbon on that day along with everyone else while they were impure. That wasn't what God granted. God gave them something else. Sometimes God knows that what we ask for is not necessarily in our own best interest. But God always listens. God always responds in ways that are ultimately in our best interest, what is best for us. And this concept explains another anomaly about the story. This story, which is related in the ninth chapter of the book of Bamidbar. It occurred on the first anniversary of the Exodus. And this is surprising because the first eight chapters of the book of Numbers relate events that occurred two weeks after the story happened. So it's chronologically completely out of order. Why are the events chronicled in this out of sequence way? Why is the earlier event told later? And there are several ways to answer this question. But one of the answers offered by Rashi, the famous, most foremost biblical commentator, is that this is a shameful saga for the Jews. And so God wanted to delay the telling of a disgraceful story. Of course, you're wondering, what about the story is so disgraceful? The fact that this was the only instance in all the years that the Jews were in the desert that they brought the carbon Pesach. This is the only time. Now, of course, on the face of it, you wonder why is, you know, why is that disgraceful? What did they do wrong? Was it not God who decided that they should only bring it this one time? But the answer is that if we learn anything from this story, it is that if Jews would have come together and stubbornly demand and, and humbly plead with God for additional opportunities to offer the Karban Pesach, then it would have been granted. The fact that they did not beg, that itself is disgraceful. Now, of course, Moshe and Aaron did not demand it because to do so would have brought more attention to the fact that the Jews didn't plead for it. So that's why they didn't do it. But again, we could take a lesson for life about the importance of pleading with God 
for an end to all hardship, to all suffering in the world. In fact, we should go all the way and plead with God for an end to all exile and for all of the problems of the world, for the coming of Mashiach. This story teaches us that we need to limit ourselves, that we shouldn't be limiting ourselves to reasonable requests. The people who demanded a second opportunity to bring the carbon Pesach, they were asking for something that was unprecedented. And still they asked and they were granted. And considering everything that we've gone through, throughout our history as a Jewish people, asking for Mashiach is certainly not unreasonable. It's just unprecedented. But guess what? So was Pesach Sheni. And it's time that we plead, that we storm the heavens, and we ask God for an end to all the suffering and pain that exists in this world. We'll be right back. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kiedman, and we're talking here about the Karbam Pesach that was offered in the wilderness and the second opportunity that God gave the Jews. We discussed various lessons, and of course, we know that when God presented the Jews with the second opportunity, Pesach Sheni, Hashem said that Jews would be eligible if they were impure or on a distant journey during the first Pesach. How far away from the temple would we need to be to be considered at a distant journey? And the Talmud offers two opinions. One is that we would need to be as far away as the city of Modi'in, which is about 22 kilometers away from Jerusalem. And the other opinion is that one is considered at a distance when one is even on the other side of the temple's door. Think about that. You know, I told a local business owner that I loved his convenient location. Walking distance from my house. The guy said, that's very nice, but if you want an oil change, you'll still have to drive. <laughs> Defining someone as distant from the temple, when one is literally lurking on the other side of the door, it seems quite odd at first. But if we unpack it a little, it will make more sense. And I think we'll learn a few things along the way. Why would a Jew spend the entire day outside of the temple and not enter for even a quick moment to offer the carbon Pesach? That now he wants a second chance? Now obviously we're talking about someone who is going through some sort of a crisis. Because he may be physically close, but figuratively speaking, emotionally is distant. He's unwilling or unmotivated to enter the temple and bring the carbon Pesach. Does this count as being in a distant road as the verse describes that the person is the, what was the exact word of the derech in a distant place? But yes, it does. If you are outside of the temple looking in, you're not geographically far. You'll enter the temple to offer the first covenant Pesach. But we're talking here that somebody who is outside, who's emotionally distant. The person might be on the outside of the temple, not looking in, looking out. 
And the truth is this can happen to us. Life is a long journey. We face many obstacles and challenges along the way. Sometimes we are close to the temple. Sometimes we are close to, ha- to holiness. But sometimes we stray. We may physically be close. We may still go through the motions and observe the things that we have been observing. But we are still emotionally distant. And we choose not to step into the temple or to get closer to God. And ultimately, this feeling of alienation can only develop when we forget one essential truth. That there is no distance between the core of our identity and God's plan. They don't march in opposite directions. They're in complete harmony. The dissonance, that cognitive dissonance that we feel usually emerges from a sense that there is me and there's God. Two different agendas, two different desires. When we learn more about ourselves, about God, and about our souls, we come to realize that this is not so. This empowers us to turn around and to enter the temple. So the message of Pesach Sheni is that even one who is unable to enter the temple, not because of physical distance, but because of emotional distance, even that individual has a makeup date. Perhaps the person does not enter the temple because he feels maybe unworthy of entering God's home. Maybe a person looks back and says, me, I, my opinions, my perspective, I don't think God wants to hear from me. The entire nation is in the temple celebrating Pesach, but this individual feels imprisoned, enslaved on the outside, unworthy, unable to enter. It's a state of mind, it's a state of being. And so the Baal Shem Tov taught us that such excessive humility could cause severe problems. As Jews, we must always remember that we are not unworthy strangers in God's home. We are God's children. We belong in Hashem's home. God wants us there irrespective of our assumed levels of worthiness. Hashem is thirsty for our presence. God yearns to hear our prayers. God wants us. If we think of ourselves in this way, then hopefully we discard our hesitations. We can find the courage to step through the doorway of God's virtual home, the inner space of our soul that delights in Judaism. And once we step in, and we're given a chance to make up for any mitzvahs that we may have missed, we begin with one mitzvah and then add another mitzvah and another one until we experience a complete transformation. And this confidence is critical because without it, we will remain forever locked on the wrong side of the doorway. We deny ourselves every opportunity to draw closer to Hashem. And so, this I think is the most important lesson we could take from Pesach Sheni. Although this is the only festival in the entire Torah for which we're given a makeup date, we learn from this date of Pesach Sheni that we will celebrate on Saturday night, Sunday, that it is always possible to correct any missed opportunities. Nishtakem farfalen. We can always rectify any past misdeeds. We can always correct it. And so, yes, Pesach Sheni is only one holiday. But I think its message is always relevant. No matter what we've done, 
No matter where we may roam, we can always come back home. It's never too late to make up with Hashem. God gave us a beautiful gift called Teshuvah, repentance, and that enables us to rectify any past mistakes we have. Imagine someone is in prison and locked behind bars, except that the warden placed the key in the prisoner's back pocket. All he needs to do is reach into his pocket, pull out a key and unlock the door. Is he really a prisoner? You would have to say that he is not. He remains in prison only as long as he chooses to be in prison. By definition, he's there by choice. But there's one important caveat. He needs to know that the key is in his back pocket and he needs to know how to use it. So the Torah informs us that we have a key in our own pocket. The story of Pesach Sheni is that clarion call to every Jew who ever missed an opportunity or committed a sin. Don't despair. You have a way out. All you need to do is Teshuvah and God will forgive you. It's not a makeup date, but it's just as good. We can't go back and light Hanukkah candles after Hanukkah, and we can't eat matzahs after Pesach, but we can do Teshuvah. The Torah tells us how to use that key, how to repent. There's three basic steps. Charat ala'ava, regretting our failure. Then it is making a resolution not to repeat it and to confess our sins to God. Once we complete these three steps, our sin is forgiven. There's no expiry date on Teshuvah. And so, Nishtar came for our fallen. We have to remember that it's never, ever too late. That's our theme here at Chabad Seniors. You could always do Teshuvah. We could always, we're always, we could remind ourselves, yes, I made mistakes in the past. But you know what? Failure is not getting knocked down. Failure is only if we stay down. It's never too late. Time never runs out on second chances. And so the path to return, we realize, is open even to the person who may be willingly and intentionally sinned. Even those who deliberately failed to bring the carbon Pesach, as the Torah says, maybe you were geographically distant and the definition of geographic distance is even just outside the door.